Hi, this is Ken Hardy, and you're listening to Red Devil Talk, the podcast with Jimmy Williams. Red Devil Talk is the latest Manchester United fan site with authentic write-ups on all things United, as well as interviews with former players. In addition, Red Devil Talk examines the growing concept of sports psychology in the modern game. From going from trial to then being offered a two-year contract, how much contact do you have with Ferguson at that point? No. At what point did he become involved in your life? So at that point, I played six games for the um, under-16s. I probably trained six times at the cliff, and the coach at the time was Robbie Styles. So again, that was another unbelievable move. It was all new to me. It was like, wow, what on earth is going on here? And um, it was a case of, I always offered the contract. I signed it, of course. It was still February, March. You started three months, April, May, June. Then on the 1st of July, it was pre-season. So you go into the cliff, you're officially an apprentice. You get sort of inducted in, shown around the cliff down in Broughton in Salford. Then a part of that process, you, you meet your coaches, obviously, Eric Harrison, who unfortunately passed away last week, and some blessings to him and his family. Um, Pop Robson, who, who was down there at the same time. And um, you, get, you get to meet everybody. <coughs> Alex Ferguson introduces himself. Obviously, <laughs> everybody knows he's, he's, he's the boss. And some of the boys have met him before because they've been there in the academy for whether it's been a year or seven years so he was meeting him he was not meeting him so to speak he just introduced himself and then you're in that process you're just going through two years of learning the trade so to speak and the first year was extremely hard very very difficult Um, you you get sort of allowed into it to a degree it's quite kids plus first of all you're just training with the first years the second years are doing their own thing but then very soon you're starting um, to help the second years to prepare for the youth cup and I remember playing against the, the second years at the time we were first years and we were getting smashed like 12 nil in training sessions and it, I was playing I've never seen anything like it from the level I was at to sort of the level I was in but what I did have um, from the past was a certain amount of resilience and the, 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 a lot of strength in the sense of what well, wasn't weak minded and that first year was, it was difficult uh, but we got better and better throughout that year and the second years in that group, they weren't as good as the year above them, the year above them, the class of 92, because I was two years behind the class of 92, but when we become second years, even though our group wasn't individually that good, we had a couple of good players in there, there was Phil Neville, and I was in it, and um, there was um, uh, Terry Cook, and um, a couple of other boys who, who was in the squad, and David Johnson, um, but apart from that, we wasn't a great 
individual players, but we were a, a good squad and we had um, an unbelievable run and we won the Youth Cup ourselves. I've spoken to a couple of former youth players and they've said that at times the treatment towards the younger players from the senior players could be harsh. Would you say that was something that reflected your experience? Again, I think it's all contextual. Um, I think if you speak to people who are, who are apprentices, they go and work in the building trade or they go and work in, 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 in as a chef. Of course it's hard and that's a part and parcel of learning the trade. There's people who probably thought it was going to be an easy process, but it's, it's difficult. You've got to deal with certain, certain situations and circumstances, and some people, without doubt, um, were probably, in their minds, bullied. Some people were probably, uh, probably uh, in their own minds, abused as well. But again, it can be the make or break in that environment. And um, I know that the safeguarding is extremely important, and certain practices have, have changed, you know. The days of chatting on mops and having to tell jokes and doing crazy things uh, that they sort of passed by, probably quite rightly so. But also back in that environment, if you could, you know, you might be a shy boy, but come out of your shell and sometimes step out of the comfort zone, it can be the very making of you from the people around you. So these sort of initiation things can be dangerous, but they can also be um, very good for bringing out uh, personality. So I think everybody's very individual when it comes down to that. And um, I certainly can understand why some people felt harshly treated. I certainly think some people um, got more respect by the way they behave when they were asked to do certain things. And um, it's, a, it's an interesting concept. But safeguarding, without doubt, is the, the thing what should be put in place and is in place now. Were you ever a witness to any funny pranks that you can tell us as part of your initiation? Well, I mean, I've seen it where the lads have got to chat up mops and. The guys are making them open Christmas presents, and you've got to pretend it's a, a, a like a skateboard and bits and pieces. One of the boys, the goalkeeper Paul Gibson, he used to go around pretending he was like a like a monster with me. It was quite funny for me. I was into weightlifting and strength training and all that, so they used to like me sort of doing like like a strip tease and getting the muscles out type of thing, which was good fun for me. And I I I'd take it as being. I just thought it was a bit of banter. And some people had sang and some people did nothing. The ones who did nothing and didn't want to join in, you know, they might have had a few balls pinged at their heads and a few of the boys ate boring sods. But, you know, again, I think, again, somebody who'd gone through that, who didn't enjoy that environment, probably thought it wasn't very nice. But other lads who just thought, you know, this is a bit of crack, this is the type of stuff I'll do with my friends. You know, that's fine. There were stories before I got there where somebody was putting, like, a, a tumble dryer. Yeah, that was... That's obviously going far beyond um, what should be allowed, and you know, but it's a different world back then. Things have changed. Yeah, definitely, it is a different world. I think if we were to hear stories like that happen today, that would be definitely perceived as bullying. Yeah, uh, I agree, quite rightly so, and that's why everybody, when the young players going through, coaches and um, staff members. We all take safeguarding courses and we make sure everybody's well-being is, is looked after, especially now because education, I suppose even youth in itself is now, it's, you don't become an adult at 16, it's 18, quite rightly people are being more protected. You were part of the Youth Cup team that won in 95 as well. What impact would you say that had in your career? Did that give you a taste? Yeah, that is um, one of the, the major um, building blocks to help you to become um, a real um, athlete or player because the practice at United was 
know, that, that youth team was a real initiation to first team play, playing. It was, everything was prepared exactly the same. He played on the first team pitches, he played at Old Trafford, he did the preparation the same, he travelled down and stayed overnight at games and he did the full preparation, the full sort of analysis and it was done in, in the right vein. And creating that sort of smell of what the professional level would be like is something that all of us wanted to be a part of. And um, the way Eric was, he was old school. He, he drilled like a sergeant major and for that age group I felt like that was quite right as well. And um, It was a tough school, it wasn't easy. But these were the learning blocks to become a become a man and to survive in football because it's so cutthroat. That's the nature of the game. Let's jump to nineteen ninety six now, your debut away to Middlesbrough. What are your memories of that day? Well the process from actually winning the youth cup and being offered a one year contract was an interesting one for me because I felt like one year contract in the environment I was in playing centre half was a, a tough environment. I thought I'm never actually gonna be able to make it as a football player at Man United. With that um, prescription, so therefore I went to speak to Alex Ferguson myself. I didn't even have an agent, I never had an agent. And I um, went to Alex Ferguson and said to him, like, Gaffer, a one year contract, I'm playing centre half, I'm, I'm a small lad, that's not going to work. I said, you know, if he was my father, what advice would you give to me? I sort of put it on his, on his a little bit. I said, well, what do you think? I said, well, I either need to change position or there's opportunity to go to America on one of these um, education scholarships for four years. And I was willing to sacrifice a one-year contract if, if, you know, if, if things didn't sit or feel right with me. And he actually said to me, listen, I respect you coming in. I, I'll give you this promise. Sign the one-year contract. Don't play the centre-half. I'll guarantee you some games in the reserves and right back. And we'll see how you do. And he kept his word, and that's what he did. And that, that year, I played in the reserves for the entire year. I got reserve team player of the year. And they offered me a two-year contract. The year after, I was a regular player of the reserves again. And then I got the opportunity to play for the first team, which was an absolute shock because I'd never even travelled with the first team. I'd not even really trained with the first team that often at that point. I got told to get measured up for a suit. I didn't even realise there was an injury crisis for the first team because you're just getting on with your own game never even got sort of looking that far forward or certainly not thinking is an opportunity for me to get the game. And I got raised up for a suit, I travelled with the first team to Middlesbrough in the North East. We stayed overnight, went to the ground, expecting thinking, oh, if I'm stood, that'd be amazing. Or maybe I'm just gonna watch, he's gonna give me a sniff of what it's all about. I walk into the change rooms and wow, I look at the actual strips all set out, because every time the strips were set out, he's always set out with the team. And it was like Spike Clegg. Alistair, and then what was wrong is Keane, Cantona, Beckham, Nicky Book, and I was oh my god, I can't believe this is obviously not playing, and that sort of shock, I went into like, you know, a time stood still, and that moment in time where I was so excited and so scared at the same time, I had this tap on the shoulder, with an arm put around me, and I turned around, and it was Bobby Charlton, and Bobby Charlton said, listen son, you know, you got the opportunity here to play for Man United, the biggest team in the world, and you know, just take the opportunity the best you can. Just more than anything else, just make sure you enjoy it. And, uh, that's certainly what I did. And we played Middlesbrough that day, and we were always standing. My memory is one of the greatest moments in my life. And we played against the likes of Janino and Rabinelli. The fact that Middlesbrough had a really good team, we drew two-two. It was just an amazing feeling. I remember getting on the bus on the way home, 
the rest of the boys who obviously played a fair few times years other like the booking schools he was like what are you gonna do tonight you're gonna go out in town to celebrate you're gonna come out with us maybe and i said nah so i'm just gonna go and meet my normal mates and we went to the snooker club and we just had a discussion about wow can you believe that and my mates couldn't believe it he actually played my first i know it's incredible it's like a, a dream come true and i sort of always you know kept my local mates i'm from ashton mcguire in termside and you know i've always kept with them i've never really ventured into the you know the social world of football you know occasionally a few nights out on christmas parties or the, you know, the lads um cards and girlfriends nights out but i stuck with my mates in ashton and i'm really pleased i did that you obviously went on then to have a few loan spells away from the club and eventually joined Oldham, but did you find life difficult post Old Trafford to adapt to? Yeah, 100%. found it very difficult. I think a little bit was my own fault and then a little bit was um, a case I wasn't really prepared for what it was like away from Old Trafford. And ultimately I went playing a bit switch and the players around me wasn't as good. I found the a little bit of the physical side, a little bit difficult in the sense of, of getting the ball in different positions. And I had a couple of tough times going to um, on loan a couple of times at Twitchell Wigan. Uh, I had a few issues with my actual personal life with, with what, what happened. And uh, I found it very difficult. Went to Oldham, local team to where I'm from. Again, I started off reasonably well, uh, but the club ended up working to administration. We had a good one where Ian Dowdy was the manager. But again, I, I ended up struggling and um, I went through a pretty bad time trying to understand really from where I was to uh, where I've been and I you was know, struggling a little bit trying to equate everything and I probably got a little bit depressed. Back then it was difficult to seek help and um, ultimately I decided to retire when I didn't even need to retire. But when I did retire, the very next day I went back to the family gym and I, I trained my auntie and I trained somebody else and I just got this buzz about life back. I just felt like, you know, I had a very nice sort of feedback loop that I was actually changing somebody else's life for the better and I enjoyed it because I think for maybe a year, six months, I got myself in this pit of depression where I wasn't happy even though I was on the reasonably good money and it sounded brilliant being a football player. I certainly wasn't happy where I was. And um, I probably cut my career short probably should have seen help and I would advise anybody in football who's been going through a tough time don't keep it and store it all yourself definitely seek help from an expert because I probably ended my career too early but I was lucky enough that I had a, um, another environment to go in where I could feel good about myself again and since leaving football I never looked back really I've really enjoyed my life and training other people and seeing people progress as either athletes or human beings is definitely a worthwhile uh, vocation you did retire from football quite young, was 27, am I correct in saying that? Yeah, it might have been 26, but you could have been 27. It has to be said though, you made a successful transition to coaching, but at what point did you prepare for that? Did you always have a plan B, or did that just happen? No, I think in the back of my mind, because of my, um, my youth and being brought up in a gym, it was second nature to me. I would say my best times as a football player at Man United is when I continued training in the family gym. Um, because back in the day, they didn't even have strength and conditioning coaches or sports scientists. It wasn't until my father got the job in the year 2000 that even Man United had that type of provision. My father got that job because of how I was so different at the club. Uh, my speed and power and my strength and you know that sort of resilience back then, they, they 
saw that as being quite rare, so they, they was asking me what's all this about, because I've made Olympic lifting, and because I had something, I used to do resistance sprints, I used to sprint up hills, I used to do all this type of stuff, and that wasn't common back then, so my dad ended up giving me the opportunity to go to United to show his wares, and then when Roy Keane got injured, um, he had his ACL, he, he had that uh, illustrious sort of tackle with um, Malcolm Yard at Leeds, you know, my dad was um, pretty much told you we need Roy to come back as fit as powerful and as good as possible. Can you do the job? And my dad took that job. So my dad and Roy King were exclusively together for nine months. And when he come back, my dad got a full-time job. So I was driven to all that. I was listening to all this, what was going on. And I always knew, I always felt that Trevor Guinness in sports science, um, all that type of fitness training was definitely in my blood. You know, go back to being a kid and watching the likes of Rocky Balboa and Karate Kid and all this type of stuff. It just sat well with me. I love that idea of sort of the Vegas riches or the, uh, the underdog wins. So I went back to the gym. Obviously, started getting qualified, personal training, doing coaching badges, football and um, Olympic lifting and British weightlifting. And then, I suppose, like anything, you're putting the right vibrations out, you're putting the right work ethic out, people hear about it and you know, again, a bit like when I got my trial at Man United, suddenly Roy Keane gets a job at Sunderland and offers me the opportunity to come up there and join him and help him to prepare this team to try and get back in the Premier League. And that's the story up until that point. You touched on Roy and Sunderland there, so that's I'm gonna stick with for a moment if that's alright. What would you say was the biggest difference between Roy as a player and as a manager? total respect of the players around him and he helped to raise their game to a level which was to their maximum capacity and throughout that he got the level of um, intensity Alex Ferguson wanted and that was an amazing an amazing time where the club was so successful as a manager he did exactly the same things but he was he had players who, who weren't quite to the level and probably what he wanted to coach. I always felt like the higher that Roy went, the more expectations he had of his, his, his players. And um, ultimately, when we joined in the championship, he had players who knew their uh, weaknesses and he helped them to do really well. We got promoted that year from being bottom of the league. Now, I was a manager for the first six games. And Roy, team, Roy King took over and we got promoted that year as champions. After that, we started to bring in some players, and unfortunately for Sunderland, as, as the years have gone by, there's a certain amount of mercenaries in the game, and they only come for the money sometimes, and not really for the club. There's been times when I've been in Sunderland, and I spoke to players, and they didn't even know where Sunderland was before joining the club, and they joined the club purely for financial gain. That's a massive shame, and that's why Sunderland ended up into the position it was. But when Roy got these players, and he got some certain players, he expected high levels from them, some of them would perform. Roy quite rightly dug him out. Um, some managers don't, but Roy was Roy is the most honest man and truthful man you'll ever meet. And um, in that respect, some players couldn't handle the way he was. And um, but we had great success when Roy was there. We got promoted. We stayed in the Premier League. It wasn't until the new owner, Ellis Shaw, come in that um, things changed a little bit because Ellis, for whatever reason, and Roy didn't see eye to eye. And, Roy stepped away and I don't think he needed to step away but he did that meant Roy King left Sunderland which was a, a sad day for me especially Now from your own point of view your role was obviously developing player levels 
I know you're interested particularly in speed and strength. Can you tell me a bit about your daily roles, your training practices? What are some of your strength and conditioning philosophies? Okay, so I mean, the most important thing for me, first of all, is you know what context is the game played in? You know, so what do the players do on the pitch? What is expected from them within their positions? And when you extrapolate that backwards, what training needs to be done to maximise their uh, their good points and what areas need to be improved? extrapolate that back again it's a case of right what movement patterns need to be worked upon and ultimately how are they as a as a general uh, organism in the sense of their overall holistic health do they look after themselves at home to nutrition life they get no right sleep practice and all these things then go into a pot of you know how can we maximize this player's conditioning for what he needs to do on the pitch then I start basically like I do now when I work with a very young client. You look at their fundamental movement patterns. Is that efficient? If it is, you can start to load them. You look at where they need to be able to, what do they do on the pitch? How do you maximise them? That sort of potential. So I was always looking for improving performance, but also trying to make players as resilient as possible to the, the risk of injury. So when that comes to actual uh, training design, different players need different things. Obviously, I was a specialist in Olympic lifting. Uh, I was qualified to do the UK Strength and Conditioning Association. I got a master's degree in uh, strength and conditioning. So there's a vast amount of tools that can be used, and it's using them applicable tools at the right time with the right people. So the younger players need different things to older players. And it's basically looking at them all with an individual case, knowing that they're a team, and how to sort of fold that within their plan throughout the week. For me personally, Mike, I'm studying psychology. I'm particularly interested in the psychology of sports injuries in contemporary sport. I'm fascinated by it. From your experience as a player and a coach, what do you think an injury can do to a player mentally? Well, it can make or break, as simple as that. You know, a lot of the time a player gets injured because there's something not quite right in the system, therefore they get exposed to something quite something out of their uh, movement competency, so therefore they break down. Also, it can be a case of they're doing too much training, therefore the system breaks down again. And ultimately, movement mechanics, whether through landing or through acceleration or deceleration, too much of something or not enough of something can cause the system to actually fail at a tissue level. Um, so when you're talking about what the after effects of that mentally, of course, you, 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 you can highlight something and you can work on it. But when you're out, whether it's a week or whether it's six weeks or whether it's six months or a year, there are certain players who come back stronger and better than what they were. There's certain players who come back never again the same player. And it's again, it's how do they, um, as they're going through the process, what are their feelings, what's their intention, how much work do they want to do, are they going to try and put in best practice, do they become lazy? But when it comes to the psychological side, very, very difficult. Um, if anything, I think football has improved massively when it comes down to the level of coaches in the game, the quality of the actual technical and tactical side, the analysis. When it comes to sports science and strength and conditioning, it's leap years ahead of where it was, quite rightly so, it should be, there's a lot of provision. But the psychological side is still something which has not quite been incorporated into the professional games as much as it should be, because without doubt, the psychological side of all sports is massive, and that's whether that's a fake on managers, whether that's a fake on players to admit their issues, whether that's in a sporting context or in a clinical sense, 
without doubt, without an individual sports athletes and the golfer or tennis players, I would have the right people surrounding me. The psychologist would definitely be one of them. But in the football world, if it's a team sport, that provision has not been took on as well as it should be. And I think the, the next renaissance of um, the football world will be the inclusion of the psychologist, but you've got to be able to fit within the system where people don't feel afraid to speak. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we're getting there, but we're not quite there. I suppose it's only really come to the fore in the last two decades, but I spoke to Brian McClare once. He said Alex Ferguson was a master in psychology. Is there any examples that you can think now in hindsight that you think, yeah, that was genius? Yeah, well, he was a, he was a master in psychology, but without being a psychologist. But then he was a master in psychology by he knew when a team needed to be refreshed. He knew when a team needed to be changed. He knew when it was the right time, for instance, to you know, get rid of Beckham or Keane or whatever because he had a feeling. But he was, he was totally in charge of that sort of system. So, but when you're talking about uh, performance psychology, when you're talking about preparing for a game, yeah, of course, there's a, there's a broad sweep. And also the man management and the psychological thing that he had. And that wasn't through learning psychology it was common sense and ultimately him being able to motivate people in the right way understanding that some players needed an arm around the shoulder some players needed you know a rocket up their ass and that's the way he was he was a very good reader he was a master of that uh, but when you talk about psychology in the sense of um, practical psychology people who are learning psychology and coming to a club that's very different we're all psychologists I'm a psychologist when you go and get your hair cut they're a psychologist they're they're all psychologists, the nurses are psychologists, the doctors are psychologists, because if you're giving advice, if you're speaking to somebody with certain words, then words have a vibration of, and words have a meaning, and you're affecting everybody. We're all psychologists to everybody around us. They always say you're the medium of the five people you knock around with the most. So therefore, if you're allowing yourself to be influenced by um, bad words, or stupid comments, or, or people who are depressed or upset, of course that becomes a part of you. So again, Alex Ferguson, he had an ultimate drive, um, and he, he created um, an environment where excellence was the only thing he was willing to accept. Therefore, you know that was the psychology within itself. But what was great about Alex Ferguson, compared to sometimes even environments at Sunderland, is that the club ran itself. Um, the players digged out other players if they wasn't performing at the right level. Players digged out other players if they wasn't behaving in the right manner. Then that's where you get an organism. The organism being Man United, where was self-sustaining and when things stepped out of place very quickly the manager got a, an air of that and he, he eradicated it and that's why Man United was so successful so successful over that period of time he was the manager yeah I mean like you said there's psychology involved in everything and another aspect of sport which fascinates me is the psychology of winning if you look at Alex Ferguson a serial winner over a long time he probably made two or three teams like you said he knew when to sell players he knew when he needed to reinvent himself and adapt if you look at snooker you have Stephen Hendry a serial winner or tennis you have Roger Federer but what would you say is the key to winning time and time again over a sustained period of time well it's, it's consistency it's willing to look what's around the corner it's willing to adapt and change it's a willingness to make mistakes but ultimately become better through that I think having an open mindset um, having a life which is always learning learn to step out of your box into other people's environments which could help all these things make a serial and lifelong learner but I hope that's why I myself I didn't potentially maximise my football career I didn't potentially become the very very best 
that strength and conditioning in the sense of what happened at Sunderland uh, because of certain circumstances. But that doesn't mean that I don't get to the highest level I can be in my third career now. So again, you know, there's lots of football players we know that you know you speak to people who are think they know about football. You say, well, what's the average age somebody retires in football? And I say, oh, I don't know, maybe 33, 34. That's the most ridiculous statement I ever heard. That makes me laugh. It makes me feel sick actually that people even think that. Because if you think the amount of players who are in the system being signed by clubs at six years old, seven years old, eight years old, you know, it's such a bottleneck at the top, it's such a pyramid system. You know, you get the one player, you might have five players like the class of ninety two in the first team for, you know, fifteen years. So all them players underneath never get an opportunity. So therefore once you get to maybe you stay in the system until you're under eighteen or under twenty threes and then you jump down the levels. But if you jump down the level, the next man United player goes playing for Wigan, where's all the boys at Wigan? They jump down somewhere else. So naturally, the average age of retirement in football is about 19. About 98% of all players who've played in some type of academy are not playing at 18. And um, to get a professional contract when you're 25, as a two or three year uh, contract in the Premier League, as a um, uh, first team player, you're talking, you've got more chance of actually being like a, a, a rocket scientist. That's how true getting it. And also, it's a very, very tough environment. I just have four questions left, Mike, and they're fan questions, if that's okay. Yeah, that's not cool. Who would you say was the best player you ever played with? Well, so the best player and the most influential player what I saw was Eric Cantona. I think he uh, brought something different to Man United. he come down, he was an absolute alpha male. But what he did was to set the tone of what the class of 92 and people afterwards did after. You know, I remember watching training when Brian Robson and Paul McGrath and all them lads were there in the young Dublin. And used to train hard, I mean, really hard. I mean, intensity, like I've never seen before. I remember, I used to go to the, what's called the Mike's Summerby Summer Soccer School. And a part of um, one of the trips was to go and watch Man United train at the cliff. And I remember then, I'd just be like a, a, a passing drill in a box and possession. I'd never seen either of them. Massive men smashing each other, swearing each other. Those kids around, I thought, wow, look at that intensity. And I actually buzzed off it. And uh, when Eric Hansen asked what, um, what his difference was, but then boys had actually finished training, the manager blew the whistle. Then they used to go in and have the showers. But Eric Hansen didn't do that. He stayed out and he worked on individual skill practice. And I remember um, uh, watching him. He used to get the ball, said, kiddo, kiddo, pass me the balls. Stand over there. He used to just ping the ball right into, the, into the, the, the ball bag and then he used to uh, do that with right and left foot. Then he used to get the ball, he used to clip it high in the sky, control on his chest, he'd come down, do a little cry, do a little shimmy, do a little cannonball shimmy. He was like, oh my God, we saw just watching all. And from that, the rest of us, especially the class of 92, Beckham started practicing free kicks, salt scales, practicing scoring, having shots into the side netting, Phil Neville and Gary Neville clipping balls to each other, right foot, left foot. Scoring, but he used to practice little drill passes to each other. It just become an environment where absolute professionalism in around the place was set by this new guy, this Eric Cantona, this French fella. And he was like, just set the store up for the next 10, 15 years of being it was just an unbelievable place to be a part of. What would you say is your favourite song or piece of music? <laughs> Interesting one. I would say at this moment in time, I have a couple, but the one I really like this moment in time is I don't know whether you've seen the, uh, the Netflix documentary of Sunderland. I've just started it, yeah, I've just started it. Well, the actual opening theme tune from that, for me, now living in Sunderland for 12 years and getting to know the local people and to uh, 
and have two children and a wife who's from there. Now that's quite a heartbreaking a, a taste in my eye type of song. And I do like that song. There's something about it which resonates with me, and I've really enjoyed the town from London. I still live there half a week, and half a week I live in Manchester. So that for me is like a current song, which I, I think is a, a, a nice feeling. What would you say is your favourite quote? keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. I see that in um, in education, I see that in some football clubs, I see that in just people's general life, just doing the same thing, expecting something different. You know, people are gonna, you know, for me, simple life uh, style choices, you know, if you're eating the wrong foods you're not gonna be healthy. If you if you spend money you haven't got, you're gonna end up being poor. And if you if you keep training and doing the wrong thing just because you enjoy doing it, for instance see people in the gym all the time. So nothing but do upper body weights, do nothing but anterior um, type of weightlifting, and they just end up, you know, just just looking stupid. And I, I think people have got to really start looking after their finances, looking after their health, and then ultimately I think the children in our society deserve a better um, education system. And that's one of the, the areas I'm really looking to get involved with now. It's not only training athletes, it's not only um, you know being a part of uh, the wider football world, and I've just run a couple of courses. Um, for um, a couple of universities. I want to downstream that into our education system. I think our children need much better provision. I think the, the P system is terrible. And I think the way schools are set up, we had and even the way they just sat down all day in classes is ridiculous. And the, the country, in my eyes, is, uh, is going backwards. Post-Brexit, post which is an interesting concept, I think it's a, a time where this country needs to um, you know, get back its flipping spirit and um, start doing things a little bit different because I think we've won backwards as a nation and I think it's terrible I agree I think the education system needs a total revamp if you look at the Scandinavian countries for example they're light years ahead of us the emphasis on play and exercise and learning through play I think Ireland and England could follow suit they have a lot to learn 100% I agree with that finally Mike and thanks for your time if you could sit with one person now it can be someone alive or it can be someone from history if you had 30 minutes to sit down and have a conversation with them who would it be and why good question nobody's really asked me that before um, I think I'd uh, I'd probably sit down with somebody um, I don't know if they'll have a little think about that but I'll tell you what I think about that I'll tell you um, if people want to learn more about the type of things I'm doing um, there's a couple of um, projects I'm working on one is my YouTube channel, which is um, Mike Clegg slash MS, MSC, which is where I've been recently interviewing um, the different football players, but ultimately it's a show which is about topical football, current football events, interviewing um, excellent practitioners in the game of football and also ex-players. Um, I'll be speaking to bands, I'll be speaking to all different types of um, athletes. Um, that's one project I'm doing. I've currently um, set up my, my father's gym as an online training platform, which is called um, Cedar Speed, and that's cedarspeed.co.uk, and that's something which I, I want to try and um, educate as many people as I can throughout the world regarding my training principles and how I think mine is different and how, how I think I can benefit many, many people, not just sportsmen, but general public as well. So I suppose if it comes down to who would I like to speak to, I would probably want to now speak to 
somebody like our health and education minister have 30 minutes with them, tell my ideas, and maybe try and create a new innovative, uh, new inclusive way of how we can make our nation healthier. And um, uh, I, I just think our future is in the news and our youth. Uh, all the research is coming out saying obesity is our highest it's ever been, type 2 diabetes is the highest it's ever been. And I just think the NHS is on its knees and ultimately you can't even get a, an appointment to see doctors for two or three weeks. So if all the systems are failing, we need to start really looking at prevention, early doors and helping as many young people not to fall into the trap of all these terrible um, symptoms which are all preventable diseases in the future. So yeah, that's where I would go. I would want to be to the highest people in power where we can make a change for our, our, our education, children's health. You mentioned your YouTube channel there. I've been following it and I thought the Wes Brown interview was great. Are you happy with how that's progressing? Yeah, no, I'm very happy. I mean, it's an interesting story how that happened. Um, I never thought I'd get into doing this type of thing. I was actually over in Ireland uh, playing the Liam Miller tribute game. Unfortunately, Liam died, as many people know, especially in Ireland. He had his um, pancreatic cancer and um, Roy Keane organised the tribute game there. I, I went over and uh, one of the guys from MUTV come over and said, hey, Mike, how are you doing? Or would you fancy getting involved in with MUTV and doing some of the punditry regarding first team under 23 and a new team? And I'm not even thought about that, to tell you the truth. It wasn't long after finishing from Sunderland, but I got home, um, spoke to Lee, who's in charge there, and he invited me to do a couple of games. I've been doing that quite regular now, MUTV, uh, last 10 or 12 games. And it was interesting because you get to be on camera, you get to feel a bit more comfortable speaking, and people show an interest. And from that, somebody said to me, Listen, why don't you think about doing your own podcast? And the idea originally was to do a podcast, to do something which was quite long winded, where people could listen to it in the car. So I met a couple of people, and one guy um, said, You could use my studio, but we normally do a YouTube channel. I told him what I wanted to do. He said, Yeah, you know, I'll give you doing for a month or two, and um, you know, I'll. I'll, I'll I'll sort of fund it for you, I'll do the production for you, um, but you have to get so many subscribers, and if you do that, we, we can you know, work together. So I started it, and um, I decided to ask a couple of simple asks to a degree, you know, people I have very good relationships with Clinton Fortune and Wes Brown, and from that it's starting to build, and tomorrow I've got Dave Fever on, who's a old ex-Man United physio, and I've probably got six or seven of the people all lined up so it's really quite interesting something I really am enjoying doing and it's not just to talk to football players it's to try and get best practice out of them but see this sort of Rags um, story which I, I think is very prevalent in the world at the moment sometimes people get trapped in this invisible cage and they can't escape their situation in life but you know Quinton Fortune he was from one of the poorest um, towns in, in, in South Africa he did it through belief through dreams, through working hard. You know, Wes Brown was from Longside, shots out and all types of things from that environment. And even myself, at the same time, which is a poor area, you know, these things aren't possible, but you've got to believe, you've got to work hard, you've got to find people who can help you. And people have got to have a vested interest. And I look back, I look at the scout who picked me up, I look at the, the father who coached me in the gym, I look at the, one of the peak teachers who helped me massively. You know, you need the right people around you. So that's, that's a big one. And then the other segment of the show is one's called Evil Sync. And Evil Sync is my health and well-being segment. And, you know, that's not the biggest thing I've been pushing for, but I'm just building up. And the first two episodes have been about um, sleep, and the next one's going to be about breathing. And then that's going to progress to 
general population and stuff, but also specialisation about how to combat some diseases and also how to become better sports people. So personally, that's one of the main drivers through the conduit of football and Man United. I want to try and get the message out of how to be healthier people. Brilliant. Well, I wish you all the best, but I'm sure it'll be a success. Well, I hope so. That's still to be tested, but people seem to be enjoying it so far. But and thank you for your support. And if you're, no problem. If, if your viewers or if your listeners are willing to subscribe, that will certainly help. And I'll keep the more sharing. If I get subscribed, the easier it will be for me to get better and better uh, people to come on the show. Thanks very much, Mike. I enjoyed that. We'll leave it there. Okay, thank you very much. Cheers, Jimmy. Pallister calling for it. James can only fist it. It comes for Cantona! I don't believe it! Well left by York, fed by Cole. Back to Andy Cole from Dwight York. Fantastic goal for Manchester United. Can Manchester United score? They always score. Gates with a shot! Jerry!